Well, good morning. Again, my name is uh, Matt Rustin, and uh, I'm good friends with Gabe, and I, it's my honor today to be bringing God's Word to you. I served as a pastor at Christ Community Church from 2009 to 2011, and from 2009 to 2010, I actually lived downtown. Uh, I was over on 10th and Broadway, uh, just down here a few blocks away, and uh, at that time, the downtown campus didn't yet exist. In fact, it was kind of just a dream at that point. And I was in a number of the planning meetings where we were talking about what could a campus look like downtown. So it's pretty surreal for me now, uh, eight years later, to, to be here and uh, to be preaching and, and to be with you guys here today. Just a fantastic community. Um, by the way, little known fact, so Gabe and I are friends. Uh, we went to seminary together at Trinity in Chicago. And uh, I had this sweet setup when I was... <laughs> This is not part of my sermon. This is just for free. But uh, I had this sweet setup that uh, I lived with this older couple when I was in seminary, and they paid me to live there, and I had to take care of their cats. And, as I, sur- and I was leaving, and as I surveyed all the people that I wanted to take my place, I had a conversation with Gabe. And I don't know if that's come out in any sermons, Gabe, that, those stories with Mr. Perutz, if you've heard that name. But uh, I was the one that led uh, Gabe to the promised land with that, with that hookup, so... Anyway, um, great to be with you. What'd you say? Minus the cats. Minus the cats. I killed all the cats off, too. <laughs> so sorry for any cat lovers out there. They were very old cats. They, didn't, they died on my watch, but uh, not because of me. Um, yeah. So uh, about a month ago, uh, I grabbed a copy of the, the Kansas City Star. I don't subscribe, but I was at my in-law's place, and they had a copy laying around. So I uh, decided to take a look at it. And uh, I don't typically read like an actual physical newspaper. Uh, usually it's on my phone. But um, I was scanning the front page, and I'm kind of, uh, when I look at a newspaper, I don't know about you, but my style is I'm kind of half interested, you know, looking for something that might grab my attention. And um, anyway, on that particular day, there was a headline that just jumped out at me, and I couldn't, couldn't ignore it. The, the caption uh, said this. It said, eyewitness to injustice. How mistakes put a Casey doppelganger in prison for 17 years. Did you guys see this story? It ran about a month ago. The story was about a man named Richard Anthony Jones. And uh, Richard uh, was convicted of an armed robbery about 17 years ago. And he was serving this sentence. And uh, for the last 17 years, he's been proclaiming his innocence, saying, I was not the person who committed uh, this armed robbery. The article said uh, in in the KC Star that that when Richard was convicted, no physical evidence linked him to the crime at all. There's no DNA evidence. There was no fingerprints. Nothing to say he was there. So why was he convicted of the crime? Why did they send this man to to prison for 17 years if there was no physical evidence? Well, on the night of the armed robbery, there were some witnesses at the scene. And the authorities brought them in, and they gave them a sheet of paper with a bunch of pictures of different men. Kind of like uh, in the movies when you see a lineup uh, against the wall, and you have to identify, that was the man who did it. And... After all these witnesses looked at the pictures, all of them were emphatic, all of them agreed. That right there, that was the man that I saw at the crime. There was no disagreement. They all um, were convinced that it was him. There was only one problem. 
Richard had a doppelganger. Do you know what a doppelganger is? Have you heard this uh, term? It's someone who looks shockingly like you do. Uh, apparently, we all have one in the world. I don't know if you found your doppelganger, but there's, uh, there's apps that you can find your doppelganger. Um, and unfortunately for Richard, his doppelganger lived only a few blocks away in Kansas City, Kansas. The reality was only recently brought to light, and here was the picture in the KC Star. Yikes. Within a very short time after this was brought to light, Richard was exonerated. He was set free. Though the courts couldn't definitively prove that they couldn't they couldn't definitively prove that he was innocent, they said he should have never been convicted, uh, based on no link to the crime and simply uh, a picture to look at. That method, by the way, of convicting criminals, where you only identify them, uh, is no longer deemed credible. But that was the system about. 17 years ago. When I read that story, it was haunting to me. What an injustice. A man who lost much of his life because a mistake was made, a very, very bad mistake, and a terrible system for convicting criminals. I don't know about you, but personal stories like that, when you have a completely innocent person, 100% innocent, and they faced injustice, they're, they're disturbing. I mean, what if I had a doppelganger somewhere that was committing a crime and they brought me in and, and they sent me to prison? What if they did that to you? We, we react to, to issues of injustice and, and stories like this, but sometimes injustices go a step further, don't they? It's not just the result of a bad mistake or a terrible system. Sometimes people face injustices that actually are premeditated. They're actually directed at a person. They're not injustices from poor systems or people inside the system. They're people outside the system. They're above the system. They're immune from the system. And these kind of injustices are not just haunting. They're actually can make us cynical. They can make us despairing. They can make us angry, even hopeless. No matter who you are today, uh, injustices are un unsettling. And all the more if you yourself have personally faced uh, a personal injustice. But for people of faith, and maybe today you're here and you're actually not a person of faith, but you're asking questions about God, it's unsettling for a different reason. It doesn't just assault our moral senses. It brings up an unsettling question. What is God doing to deal with injustice? Is he doing anything? Is he uninterested? Is he uncaring? Or maybe worse, is he unaware? And what about long after the fact? After justice hasn't been settled? What is God doing then? These might seem like irreverent questions. They might seem inappropriate for a church service. But they're exactly the issues that the text brings up today. It's an ancient story with a theme that has confronted people throughout time. What is God doing to deal with injustice? So if you have a copy of the Bible or I see some people out with their uh, smartphones, find 1 Kings chapter 21. 1 Kings chapter 21. 
story today is about a man named Naboth. Not a very common name. Anyone know someone named Naboth? Yeah, I didn't think so. Naboth is the kind of guy that most of us would have admired. Maybe you would have resented him, actually. Uh, jealous of his goodness. And by goodness, I'm not talking about some smarmy sort of, you know, goody-two-shoes, Ned Flanders sort of goodness. He was the kind of guy that you'd trust your keys with to your place if you're gone. He's the kind of guy that you'd let him pick up your kids if you had a late meeting. He was a small business owner in a town called Jezreel, and uh, he owned a little vineyard. It was a vineyard that had been in his fam family for many years, uh, for generations actually. It probably wasn't anything particularly special, but it was prime real estate. It was just absolutely uh, prime real estate. In fact, here's a picture of Jezreel, and uh, it's a pretty sweet spot in, in the Middle East. Um, you can see it's kind of perched up on a hill. There's fertile ground all around it. And the king of Israel had a summer home in Jezreel. Uh, that was the kind of place it was. He, his main lodging was in Samaria, but he had his place right here. And Naboth's vineyard, we're told in the text today, was right in the king's view. It was right next to his palace. So this was some prime, prime real estate. Look at the text in chapter 21, verse 1. Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it's near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value and money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my father's. As the text indicates, uh, Ahab wants to extend his property and acquire some new gardens. And uh, for weeks or perhaps months, maybe even years, he'd been looking out his palace window at that one particular property, wanting it, lusting after it. And, and finally he says, maybe I should just go talk to the guy that owns it. And this is where we see Naboth's goodness on display. Because this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for Naboth. This is an opportunity to cash out, to get a lump sum of money, or perhaps even better yet, to get a, an even better chunk of land. This is a, a great chance to upgrade. But Naboth, you saw, didn't do it. Notice that he doesn't just say, I'm not interested, or I really like my property. He says, I can't do this. The Lord, Yahweh, forbids it. So what is... What is Naboth talking about here? Why, why does he say that the Lord forbids this? Well, according to Israelite uh, law in the Torah, uh, all the land that was given to families was supposed to be kept through generations, family to family to family. Uh, it was never to be sold away permanently. In fact, if you've ever heard of like the year of Jubilee, if you've ever heard that term, it comes around every 50 years. Basically, that was to protect this, this law. That if your family ever fell on hard times and you needed money, you could lease out your land uh, for someone else to pay you. But at the end of 50 years, it had to come back to you. Uh, so you were never um, uh, without land. But you see, Naboth isn't in any financial hardship. He doesn't need the cash. So there's really no reason under the law why he could sell it. 
See, are, are you beginning to see what I mean by Naboth's goodness? He's the kind of guy who can't be bought. He's a man of principle. He's a man of conviction. He follows first Yahweh, but not Ahab. If we've learned anything about Ahab this, sun, this summer, it's that he's not particularly interested in obeying Yahweh. And he's especially getting tired of anyone who keeps from, from getting what he wants. So Ahab leaves this conversation with Naboth, and he's angry and resentful. Uh, I believe the text says that he sulks, that he's sullen. I kind of imagine like a four-year-old that kind of, you know, puts up his elbows like this and sighs. That's the king of Israel is doing this because he can't have some, some property. At this point in the story, as the story goes on, a familiar character enters the scene. It's Jezebel, Ahab's wife, his peach of a wife, actually. Um, she finds herself, uh, she finds her husband just moping and pouting and, and sullen. And she's like, what, what happened? A few chapters back in 1 King, we've already seen that Jezebel is quick to step in and take action when her husband is too weak-kneed or lacks the strategy to get things done. So she comes and she proposes a plan uh, to her husband that's sulking. Look at verse 7. Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. I love how the Message Bible uh, paraphrases that, that verse, her response in this moment as she's looking at her kind of pitiful husband. Here's what the message says. Is this any way for a king of Israel to act? Aren't you the boss? On your feet. Eat, cheer up. I'll take care of this. I'll get the vineyard of this Naboth, the Jezreelite, for you. So how is how's Jezebel going to do that? He already can't be bought. They can't just take it from him. Naboth would have to be dealt with. Verse 9, she wrote in letters, Proclaim a fast, set Naboth at the head of the people, and set two worthless men opposite him, and let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. Just a quick word of background here. Um, the king of Israel could go to the community and say, okay, guys, we're going to have a fast because someone has done something evil in our community and we all want to repent, throw on some sackcloth and ashes, come before God and say, sorry, we're going to do that as a community. You could do that if an evil act uh, was done. Do you see the irony here? <laughs> this is sick. No evil has been committed, and he's calling a fast so that they can kill a guy there. It's the exact opposite of what the purpose of the fast was. So, as the plan unfolds, two worthless men are there, and they start accusing Naboth. They accuse him of two great evils, blaspheming, cursing, rejecting God, and then secondly, cursing the king. In other words, religious treason and political treason. But you'll notice in the text, if you look, there's no trial. There's not even any lineup where they pick out his picture. The entire crowd is in on it. And soon the entire crowd is dragging Naboth away. 
outside the city to stone him to death. The text spares us the graphic details, but Naboth receives a horrific end. Shortly after this, the text tells us that word is sent back to Jezebel, that her orders have been completed, and with glee, she finds Ahab, and she says, all right, Naboth is dead, dear. His vineyard is all yours. Enjoy. And Ahab, delighted, runs down the vineyard, begin making plans for his new garden. By the way, it's a vegetable garden. He's he's tearing out these these grapes. That in itself is uh, bad judgment, but uh, we'll leave that to the side. This is a disturbing abuse of power. Naboth, a king, has been entrusted with power and is using it to completely destroy an innocent victim. At this point, I want to just just do a short aside and talk about power just a little bit. You've heard it said probably that power corrupts and absolutely, absolute power corrupts absolutely. You've probably heard that phrase. But in the Bible, power, it's actually a little bit more nuanced than that. In the Bible, power is like fire. It's like fire. It can be used for good or it can be used for bad. Fire when used for good purposes. I mean, have you ever sat around a fire, uh, a campfire? It's awesome. It's fun. You can warm by the fire. It can keep a house warm. You can roast marshmallows by the fire. Fire can be a beautiful thing when it's used for good. But fire unchecked can also destroy an entire forest. It can lay waste everything in its path. It can burn skin. It can burn down a house. See, that's like power. In the Bible, it's not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, every person created in God's image, every single one of you here today, every single one of you has power. You might not feel like it, but you actually do because you're created in God's image. Power isn't synonymous with force or coercion or violence. Instead, coercion and violence and force are things that you can do with power. But you can also use power to love, to guide, to represent, to help. God's aim in giving each of us power is to to use it for the good of others. Power goes wrong, though, when we selfishly use it for our, our own ends, like Ahab has done. A few years back, uh, there was an author, Andy Crouch, uh, wrote a great book called Playing God. He asked a great question about power. Uh, I don't know if you're taking notes, but this would be a great question uh, to write down. It's, who is flourishing because of the power that I have? Who's flourishing because of the power I have? Is it just me or is it others? One of the greatest dangers of power, it's kind of like almost like carbon monoxide. You You don't actually always recognize it. And so we aren't aware of how we're misusing it or using it. But you have power. Kids. I see some kids uh, around the room. You've got power. You might have power over your siblings. You might be stronger or smarter than they are. You might have power at school, on the playground, or in the classroom. Influence. Are you using that power to help or to hurt? Adults, you have power. Power in your homes, in your relationships, in your workplace. Maybe different levels than other people, but you have a sphere of influence. We exercise power where and how we spend our money, who we spend time with, who we don't spend time with. Let me emphasize again, power is not bad. The goal is not to get rid of power. Rather, it's 
to see the power that we have and to use it for the flourishing of others, especially the vulnerable. That's the exact opposite of what Ahab has done. So back to the initial question that we asked, though. Where is God in all this? What happens when there's an abuse of power and it seems like God is not acting? See, because Naboth is not going to go before a trial. He's not going to go to a court. There's going to be no jury. There's no human judge. So where is God in all this? Look at verse 17. It should be up on the screen. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, the Tishbite, the prophet, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. See, human courts had failed Naboth. And Ahab would never be accountable to them. But the prophet Elijah enters the scene. And the Lord has spoken to him about a message that he must deliver to Ahab from God himself. It's an announcement that there's another court. There's another judge. There's another verdict. The Lord Yahweh, he sees. And so Elijah, the main character who we've been walking with this entire summer, a spokesman for God against evil, goes to deliver this message and confront Ahab. Ahab is strolling around, and, and here's what Elijah says to him in verse 20. Ahab says to Elijah, have you, excuse me, this is the king to Elijah, says, have you found me, O my enemy? Elijah answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up, and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond, or free in Israel. Finally, justice is being done. It's what we long for. It's what the author wants us to long for, that God is now confronting uh, this evil king, Ahab. Just a second, though. This seems like good news, that God is a God of judgment here. But if I were to say, before uh, all of us were coming in this morning... Is it good news that God is like judgmental or a God of justice? Uh, maybe if I use the word justice, yes. But if I, if I said, is it good news that God judges? If you're like me, you might have been a little bit uncomfortable with that. Like, I'm not sure I like a God who judges. I'm not sure I want that. I'm not sure I like that. But that mindset that's very common in, in Westerners like me is typically the mindset of those who have never suffered injustice in their lives. Those who have suffered the kind of injustice that Naboth suffered and the emotional pain that his family was dealing with, they're actually thankful that there's a God who judges and pronounces judgment against those who have wronged um, them. There's a theologian, Miroslav Volf. He's at the Yale Center for Faith and Culture, and, and in his culture, He's seen uh, lots of suffering, lots of pain. Here's what he says. He said, it takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. 
in a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea will invariably die. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. See, the fact that God judges is actually good news. It should be good news to us. We should be thankful. Whether or not evils are ever prosecuted on this earth, there is another court, another judge, and he is always just. God will judge the oppressor. There's something else in these texts, though, that's very interesting. It's as if God himself doesn't want us to forget about Naboth. If you were to count uh, in this chapter 21, you would count 21 times. Actually, not 21, 17. But uh, maybe you'd count 21 if you counted them a few extra times. 17 times that Naboth's name is mentioned. Naboth, Naboth, Naboth. Six of those are after he dies. It's almost like the author is saying, don't forget about this guy. Don't forget about Naboth, the Jezreelite. One scholar said it this way. He said, it's almost like Naboth haunts the scene like a ghost that will not be laid to rest. We also must not forget those in our neighborhoods, in our cities, in our world who suffer like Naboth. God didn't want us to forget him. We shouldn't forget those um, who suffer in our world like Naboth. As children uh, who've been welcomed into God's family, the just judge, uh, we should also care and work for justice in our world. And while we should never take the place of seeking God's vengeance, we must heed God's many uh, commands in the scripture to work for justice. Gabe mentioned it earlier, but when you give to the local church, this local church, a portion of your money is actually going to initiatives uh, that serve the cause of justice here in Kansas City uh, and around the world. There are also awesome organizations out there, just fantastic organizations. One that uh, I like and my wife and I have personally supported uh, is International Justice Mission. Uh, They work tirelessly for the cause of justice around the world. Uh, and they're doing fabulous work. I encourage you to go check out their website if you've never seen the work that they're doing. So the text is coming to an end now. Judgment has been pronounced. But there's somewhat of a surprising twist at the end of uh, the verses. In verse 25 and 26, it talks about there is none as evil as Ahab and all the evil that he's done. But when you look at verses 27 through 29, I'm actually not going to read them today. Um, But something strange happens. Ahab comes before God and says, basically, I'm sorry. For the first time in this entire story, after he's heard this judgment, he puts on sackcloth and ashes. He humbles himself before God. And God, in his audacious mercy, it almost seems unfair, notices. And he says, do you notice what Ahab has done? But make no mistake. God here says that he will delay his judgment and judgment will come much later than most of us would be comfortable with. But God does bring about his promise. At the end of 1 Kings 21, Ahab is killed in a battle and the dogs do lick up his blood just as they did Naboth, just as was prophesied. This is the end of Ahab. This is the end of Jezebel. This is the end of his influence in his family. 
kind of satisfying, isn't it? Isn't it kind of satisfying? Ahab gets what he deserves. The bad guy gets convicted. The world once gone wrong is now made right. And of course, God's justice should satisfy us. It should comfort us. But that fact that God is, is just, that he's a judge, if you're like me, it should also terrify us. Because all of us, every single one of us, and this is almost hard to hear, but all of us actually deserve the judgment of God. Maybe you're like me. I find myself saying, wait, 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 just a second. Like, I'm no Ahab. I don't steal people's vineyards and kill them. I don't worship Baal or date girls who do. That's true. The problem is when I measure my life against God's perfect standards, I fall terribly short. Sure, I'm no Ahab, but I'm also no Jesus of Nazareth either. Though I don't know your story, I don't know where your life is taking you. The Bible says that we all fall short. Here are some, just a few different verses. Romans 3.10. As it is written, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of our sin is death. In other words, it sounds like our prospects are about the same as Ahab's. We will be judged and found guilty just like him. To not fear this or think about this or like consider that the Bible said this, I think, I think that would be foolish. And if I were to simply end there, that would be, this would be like a pretty depressing morning, right? But there's one final crucial point that the Bible also makes clear. And that's that every single one of us, you, I, every single one of us, can actually be free from judgment, can be completely off the hook, set free. How do I know that? Think with me for just a second. Think, think with me for a second. In the story today, Naboth didn't get away. He died. He absorbed the evil of Ahab into himself. In other words, Ahab's sin brought Naboth to the grave. And what has my sin done? What has your sin done? It also brought a man to the grave. There was someone like Naboth, an entirely innocent man who absorbed our evil into himself. My sin, your sin, literally brought about his final breath. Isn't that what the cross is about? Jesus taking our evil actions, all of them absorbing them into himself and actually dying for our sin. Isaiah 53 says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, Jesus is the better Naboth. On the cross, Jesus secures mercy for those who deserve judgment, even for you, even for me. If we simply, we just simply turn to him in faith and say, rescue me. Have you done that? Have you placed your faith in Christ, calling on his name? Judgment is coming to this world and to our lives. The question is, where will we find 
ourselves when it comes? Will we be in the shadow of the cross of Christ who absorbed the full judgment of God on our behalf, leaving us nothing to face? Or will we be left on our own to face what we deserve in its entirety? Thanks be to God that through faith in Christ, all of us can be free of judgment. Where will you be found? Let's pray.